my name is Matt Seipel. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, last week, our senior pastor, Hal Farnsworth, finished up a sermon series on the first five books of John. That's our normal practice here, is to preach through books or sections of, of books of the Bible. And actually, in mid-January, I think Hal mentioned to you, we're going to start a new series through the book of Zechariah, so-called so-called minor prophet. Uh, well, the reason for that, the reason we preach through books, the reason we can look at a book like Zechariah is because we believe uh, that the whole Bible, uh, that everything that we find there is written to point us to Jesus and to point us to his gospel. Yet at the same time, often the, the prophets remain uh, relatively unknown. Um, if there are pages in your Bible that are stuck together, uh, they might be between the Proverbs and somewhere in the New Testament. Uh, that might be where the gold is still shiny uh, on the edge of your Bible. But so much of, of Jesus' life uh, in the four Gospels and, and so much of his work by the Spirit uh, in the church, in the book of Acts, so much of it is understood only in light of what the prophets had to say about what Jesus would come and do. In fact, in Zechariah, when we get there, what, what you'll see uh, next year is that there is no Old Testament book quoted more than Zechariah during Jesus' Passion Week. Uh, the, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they made sense out of what Jesus is doing by how they understood uh, what Zechariah had to say. So this morning, we're going to come to another uh, minor prophet, sort of in anticipation of what we're going to do uh, in, the, um, in January. Uh, and actually, I, I go ahead and invite you, start looking for Micah now. Um, you can bite the bullet and look at the table of contents. Um, you can go ahead and try to find it. It's between Jonah and Nahum, those other books that you like to read. Um, but Micah, too, just like Zechariah, uh, Micah helped the New Testament writers make sense out of what Jesus was doing. Um, in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod wants to know where is the Messiah going to be born, where is he, where can I find him, uh, the Jewish leadership immediately know uh, that he's in Bethlehem. And the only reason they know that is because they understood uh, what Micah had to say in the passage that we're going to read this morning. The, the, the reason I say all that before we come to the passage is uh, in spite of the sometimes confusing language and apparent difficulty of the prophets, uh, we are here week in and week out uh, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That is who we're here to learn about. So as we uh, come to Micah chapter 5, uh, keep your eyes fixed on him. Uh, follow along with me. It's printed there in your bulletin. We're going to look at Micah 5 verses 1 through just the beginning of verse 5. Let's give our attention uh, to the reading of God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Now please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the great privilege we have to open your word together, to gather together as your people, and to hear from you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We pray that you would reveal him to us uh, this morning. Uh, Show Jesus to us. Help us to place all our hope in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, I'm sure you all noticed when you came in that we have been decorating. Um, We have wreaths with green and red on the windows. I I don't even know what that has to do uh, with Christianity, but I know it's supposed to make me think about Christmas, and it totally works. Like, I'm I'm excited. Like, I'm ready for Christmas. We we had these decorations up last week. We couldn't even get through the book of John without um, getting all our decorations up. Uh, My kids are jacked up about Christmas, um, and a lot of you are, are excited uh, about this time of year, um, and, you know, there is a lot to be excited about, um, more or less uh, worldly reasons, but also a lot of really great um, heavenly reasons. We Christians have a lot uh, to celebrate this time of year, but in church history, it's actually only recently, it's only recently that uh, the Sundays leading up to Christmas have been entirely focused on Jesus' birth. The, the origins of the Advent season are, are a little bit unclear, but at least since the 4th century, uh, these Sundays leading up to Christmas have been used to anticipate uh, the coming of Christ. That's what Advent means. It means coming. But for most of that time in history... Uh, at least the first two Sundays or the first three Sundays of the Advent season were devoted to anticipating his second coming. And it was only uh, the last Sunday or the last two Sundays before Christmas that Christians would anticipate or um, celebrate the anticipation of the incarnation of Christ. Well, well, the reason for this is uh, the purpose of the Advent season was to remind Christians that we live between the times. Uh, We live uh, between these two comings. So we have the glorious benefit now of living uh, post-incarnation, post-life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but we still await his return. Uh, Things are not yet as they will be. And in this way, we actually actually have quite a bit in common uh, with these Old Testament saints. We have a lot in common Uh, with the people that the prophets were writing to, because we long for the same ultimate goal of history that they longed for. We pray for a time when Christ's reign on earth will be as it is in heaven. That is what we look forward to. But the modern church, uh, particularly the Western evangelical church, has really kind of lost this focus on the second coming, or if, or if we do think about it, it's, 
its dates and uh, geography and things that get us off of thinking about Jesus. Um, this loss of the focus on the second coming, it, it ends up being reflected in the way that we celebrate uh, Christmas, the way, we, the way we treat the Advent season. All we do is look backwards. Um, so I've been thinking this week, and I want, I'm, I guess I'm inviting you to think with me this morning, why is that? Why is it um, that we don't look forward to Christ coming again? Uh, per, perhaps it's just simply that we're not that concerned with eternity. Uh, we are myopic uh, and short-sighted in our views of the world. Uh, maybe, and maybe this is particularly um, uh, particularly pertinent uh, for us, for for Western Christians, we just don't think that we need anything. Uh, we live we live pretty decent lives as it is, or we just don't move beyond the felt needs, uh, beyond things that we think we can manage. Uh, or or maybe you're just uh, you're just numb, and you don't you're tired of longing, uh, and your existence is one of just getting by. But when when there's no hope in the future, either you become cynical or you're left to try and sentimentalize the past and just pretend that the present isn't really that bad, like a Christmas movie. Um, but like it, says, uh, like it says on the front of your bullets in there, this is a John Owen quote, I believe, uh, Christians are to be people that breathe and pant after the second coming. You see, we ought, we ought to want to see him. I mean, don't, don't you want to see him, uh, to be with him? Or are we so focused on the present that we end up forgetting that all of this is, it is headed somewhere? It is headed somewhere. So before we get into Micah, I do, I do need to explain at least a couple things about what's going on before we get uh, to Micah chapter 5. Micah, as I mentioned, was a prophet. He lived uh, during the time of Isaiah and Hosea, other uh, more well-known prophets. This was during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the 10th, 11th, and 12th kings of Judah in the line of David. This is uh, after the kingdom has been divided so the, Micah is in the southern kingdom, uh, roughly covering about a 60-year period. Now, the prophets are not like uh, New Testament letters that are written uh, to, into one very specific situation at one point in time. The, most of the prophets tend to be a compilation of the prophecies that were told during the prophet's lifetime. So what we have in the book of Micah is a compilation of the prophecies he was giving over a 50 or a 60-year period. So in the first two chapters of Micah, he spends almost all his time uh, really denouncing the idolatry uh, and oppression and general failure of the leadership uh, in the southern kingdom. I'll get through this in a minute. You tracking with me? We're just talking about what happened to Micah. Okay. So when you get to chapter 3, verse 8, uh, he gives this little purpose statement, or at least it's the purpose up until that point in the book. It's, it's a little bit surprising. Micah says that he is there to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel 
his sin. Uh, somewhat surprised, at least to me it was surprising, uh, Micah, he does not say, uh, I'm here to warn you, you need to repent to stave off the judgment. Uh, Micah is actually there to tell them that the judgment is coming. So a few verses later in verse 11, this is how the leadership responds to what Micah has to say. They say, well, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Everything's going to be fine, man. Chill out. We're believers. We have the temple. Stop all this judgment talk. So in chapter 3, verse 12, here's how Micah responds again. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Micah is telling them that the army of Assyria is here. He's talking to them during the invasion of the northern kingdom by Assyria. In Assyria, they are not uh, asking for tribute or just money. They are coming into the land. This would have signaled that the covenant curses of Deuteronomy are now coming to pass on God's people. Uh, they are first coming in through the northern kingdom. They're encroaching further and further. They invade the north as far as Galilee by 732. And then the northern kingdom falls in 722. And we never hear about the northern tribes again in the Bible. And more than that, Micah tells them, in another hundred years, Babylon is coming. And they are going to take you away and destroy the temple. It is over for you. Judgment has come upon you. So, by the time you get to chapter 5, Micah begins with this kind of reminder of the present circumstances of what's going on in their lives. If you look in your bulletin at verse 1, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is a direct reference to Assyria's own king publicly insulting their king, Hezekiah, in 2 Chronicles 32 and 1 Kings 18. The northern king had fallen 20 years earlier, and now Assyria is knocking on their door. And by the time we get to chapter 5, here's what Micah wants them to know. Here's what... Here's what I believe God wants you to know and wants us to know. This all applies to us. He is telling them there is still hope. Even now, in light of all that I've said, it might not come uh, in the way that they expect it. It might, not, it might not come even when they think they need it. But for all of those who will live by faith and not by sight, there is certain hope in a ruler who is to come, who has come for us and is yet to come. Okay, for all those who will live by faith and not by sight, there is a certain hope in this ruler to come. We're going to look at three uh, features of this hope as we walk through the text together. We're going to see that hope comes in an unexpected place, that hope comes both in and through distress. And lastly, we'll see that hope resides in the shepherd king who is to come. So first, there is hope 
in an unexpected place. Look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. God works and even brings about salvation in ways that appear foolish to the world. He is not working according to the principles of this world. We see that first, that there's hope uh, from an, really from insignificance. He mentions here uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah. It means house of bread uh, and fruitful, kind of a lofty name for this little tiny place. It's so small he had to mention Ephrathah so that it wouldn't be confused with the other Bethlehem uh, further in the north. It was, it was so small that it wasn't mentioned, um, it wasn't mentioned among the towns that had armies in the book of Joshua in chapter 15. Bethlehem was unincorporated. Uh, Bethlehem did not have any traffic lights, and they certainly did not have any kings. Uh, most of the other kings had been born in Jerusalem, but this ruler who was to come was going to be a nobody from nowhere. There, there was one other king. Uh, there was one other king who was born in Bethlehem, and that, that was David, uh, 300 years earlier. And he too, he was, he was chosen by God uh, as the youngest of eight sons. He had himself the most unlikely of beginnings. He, he rose up out of Saul's ruin. And what they're told is that this greater David is going to come out of the failure of David's line. You see, God, he delights to work in this way. He delights in it. The, the unlikeliness, the insignificance, and even the impossibility of the circumstances all highlight God's greatness. They, they force us to cast ourselves on his mercy and not on our own strength. God wants us to have to hope in him alone and not in anything else. This ruler was going to come from insignificance, from nowhere. But very interestingly, he also comes both from and for God. He says, from you, that is from Israel, shall come forth for me. He's coming for God. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, when, when God sends the prophet Samuel to go anoint David, God himself says, I have provided for myself a king. You see, God is the one who is at work here. It is God who is doing this. It is God who is sending the ruler, and he does it for himself. It is all for God and for his glory. He tells us the ruler is from old, from ancient days. While, while we know with uh, New Testament eyes, we know that Christ is eternal I think the reference here is really back to the promise of David in 2 Samuel 7, that God would establish an everlasting kingship through David's line. Uh, this new and greater David, you see, is God's yes to his own promise that he had made 300 years earlier. The point, the point here is, what we see in Micah 5 is not a plan B given the difficult circumstances that they find themselves in. 
This is part of God's sovereign and eternal plan to glorify himself through insignificance. Israel themselves, they were, they were told by God that they were not chosen for their greatness, but that they were the fewest of all peoples in Deuteronomy 7. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the, uh, the church at Corinth, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, God, he wants you to have nothing left but him. That's the way he wants it. The lowliness of Christ's own human origins actually highlight that he also has a divine origin. This is just simply not how any man uh, would have done it. Not, not in a million years if someone told you to draw up a plan for the salvation of the world, would you have done it this way? But for us, uh, for, for Jesus' followers, humility is part of the deal. Humility is a necessity. None of the blessings uh, that we ever encounter are ever earned. They're never because of our background. They are only by the grace of God in Christ. His ruler from lowly Bethlehem. You see, Jesus, Jesus himself understands all your weakness, all of your humble circumstances, all of your insignificance. Jesus came into the world by humbling himself, born in a stable, born to parents, who were too poor to buy anything to sacrifice but doves. And even his own, his own victory march is on a donkey uh, on its way to the cross to be crucified. Jesus, he understands humbling circumstances more than you do because he experienced them as God. So, so if Jesus... This great ruler, savior of God's people. If, if Jesus could be born in such insignificance, well, then maybe he could be born in me. Maybe he could be born in you. Because with God, there is always hope. Even in the most unlikely and impossible circumstances, including including the siege that is upon them. Uh, in verse 1, this ruler not only comes uh, from an unexpected place, but this ruler comes and brings hope in the midst of distress. Look at verse 3. Micah says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. You see, the certainty of the hope that we have, it doesn't rest on our present circumstances, but in a promise. The certainty of our hope rests in the eternal word of God and his commitment to himself, his own commitment to love his people. And what Micah tells us is that it is, 
It is certain, uh, but the object of that hope rests in the future. There is a true restoration uh, for Israel, but it will not be until Messiah comes. He tells them they are given over until this ruler comes. And actually, even after, even after the return from Babylon that they experienced, the exile is not really over until there is a Davidic ruler on the throne in the form of the Messiah. Now, there are, there are other predictions about a future time of strength that is going to be revived uh, through kingship. But the question, the question they had to be asking is, but when? When is he coming? And we, I mean, we might ask, we might ask the same question. When, God? When? When will I not be lonely? When will I not have to worry? When will I no longer be afraid? How long, O Lord? This this unknown keeps us focused on God's sovereignty and God's timing. Uh, These people would wait another 700 years for Christ to come. And Micah tells them that in this waiting, it would not be without hardship. Uh, He tells them that their waiting will be like the pains of labor. Uh, This might might make you think about Mary, uh, and there may be some allusion there, but I think what Micah has in mind is the labor of the people. It is Israel who would groan like a woman in labor as they awaited the Messiah to come. Uh, This metaphor is used repeatedly throughout the prophets to refer to the time until the kingdom comes. Israel would experience the worst of all her fears before these promises ever came to light. You see, after Assyria came in, Babylon came in, and after Babylon, Persia came in, and after Persia, Greece came in, and after Greece, Rome came in, pain would characterize all their waiting. And although we live, although we live after the kingdom has come, it is not yet realized. And if you are a Christian, you are united to Christ in both his death and his resurrection. Just as Jesus' life, as Calvin says, was a perpetual cross, suffering for us always comes before glory. We cannot escape it. Uh, Pain characterizes our waiting as well. Uh, Perhaps some of you parents have have used a, uh, I think they call it a Jesse tree to help explain the story of the Bible and the anticipation of, of Christ's coming. But we actually find in Isaiah 11 that it says Jesus is going to come, he's going to be like a branch that comes from the stump of Jesse. Uh, and the whole point there is that the tree had to be cut down before the new branch could come. We have, we have this tendency to think that if we're doing Christianity right, There just won't be any suffering. But Micah tells us, no, 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 death always precedes resurrection. And as far back as Genesis 3, they've been told that this promised seed would come through the pains of labor. 
thankfully, Micah also tells us there is, there is a birth. The Messiah does come. Brothers are restored. Not Israel's brothers, but the Messiah's brothers. He does gather in his people uh, now by faith, one day by sight. You see, our waiting, our waiting through the present distress is always worth it. There will be no regrets in heaven for any of the hope that you had on earth. The present darkness that we experience, it is real, but Micah wants us to know it is not ultimate. We cannot let our circumstances dictate the hope that we have. It should should be the other way around. Our circumstances should make us long for the certainty that we have in the future. See, Israel, uh, perhaps for good reason, uh, they wanted to have a military uh, deliverance, and all they got was a promise. Perhaps, uh, perhaps you feel that way. Perhaps you've been uh, disappointed that all you, all you have uh, is this promise, and you, you trust God, and you want to be a hopeful person, but you still find yourself asking, well, what about right now? So, is Christ's significance for you, is it only in the past? Is it that he has secured something for you, something something really important, but it's not really helping now, it's not really helping with the laundry or the snotty noses or infertility? or the infidelity, or the cancer, or just the the mind-numbing work that you have to go back to tomorrow that you don't know when it's going to end. What Micah is telling them is to remember that he really is coming. And what we need to remember is God always keeps his promises just like he kept that promise to David, to bring a new David. Uh, Jesus really is coming. This life and all its suffering will feel like a short time in eternity. And when we look back to the first coming, uh, it should give us certainty about the second coming. And that is where our longing needs to be placed. You see, we don't look back on our salvation as finished, only to then put it on the shelf and then sort of move on to these more immediate concerns. Uh, Our salvation itself is a foretaste of the future. The future that has broken into our own present lives, but only to be completed at Christ's return. Hope is what Michael wants them to have. There's hope from unexpected places. There's hope in the midst of distress. And lastly, what we see is that this hope resides in a person. There is hope in a shepherd king who is to come. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace, their hope, 
comes in a person, it comes in a ruler, unlike any ruler they've had before. You see, the previous rulers have actually been the problem. That's what Micah has been addressing through the first four chapters of the book. And they have to be asking, well, is this one going to be any different? Why would you just give us another king? And he tells them, well, this one is going to be, he's going to be a shepherd. He's not going to use the people for his own gain. No, he is going to come to care for, to feed, and to protect his people. Jesus, uh, the shepherd king, he exists for the sake of his people. He, he comes into the world because of the Father's love for the world, and he serves the people by being himself a servant of Yahweh, of God. Jesus, uh, in his humanity, he shepherds his people not in his own strength, but in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. We learned in John that Jesus' own food was to do the will of the Father. And as the shepherd, who shepherds in the strength of Yahweh, it is God himself, through this ruler, who comes to care for his people. He's not going to rule with military might, but in the trust of the Lord. And he conquers the whole world by submitting himself to the Father. And what we need to know, what we need to be reminded of is Jesus is doing all this work right now. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf, deflecting all of Satan's accusations against you. He's living in you by his Spirit to change you and to change us into the sheep that we ought to be, that he wants us to be. Right now. And this shepherd will bring you safely home through death and into eternal life with him. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus will not go to sleep on you. Jesus is with you. And he will never let you down. The shepherd, David, conquered the promised land, but the kingdom of Christ, we're told, will cover the earth and all of his people will share in the victory with him because he is the king who brings peace, who is peace for his people. The immediate reference here in Micah, given the circumstances, is likely to to their own physical safety, uh, to the enemies they have at hand. But in Micah 7, it's actually the verses that we read for our assurance of pardon this morning. Micah 7 shows that the peace we need is from a greater enemy. We need peace from sin and all the judgment that it brings. Uh, In Ephesians Chapter 2, Paul, Paul borrows some of this la- same language to talk about Jesus. He's speaking to the Gentile church, and Paul says, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, that's Jew and Gentile, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. You see, the peace that Christ brings is, is not a peaceful, easy feeling. Uh, the peace that he brings is 
both between men and more importantly, with God himself. In Christ, we are no longer separated from him by our sin. Our sins have been cast into the sea by our shepherd. We have these We have these fleeting moments of peace now, uh, but they are to point us forward to the great peace that is to come when we will know sin no more. Instead instead of trying to repeat or relive or remember these fleeting earthly moments of peace, we are to enjoy them for what they are, but long for the true peace that comes when we see him face to face. Do you know uh, this peace? The peace that only comes from Jesus Christ, the shepherd from Bethlehem. Some of Micah's harshest words are for the other false prophets that just told the people what they wanted to hear. It was actually, it was loving of Micah to tell them of this coming judgment so that they might place all their hope in the Messiah to come. So how can we have this peace? Well, you must know Jesus, and you must long for Jesus, long after him. The hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone, it is not gained by measuring up to him, but by submitting yourself to him in faith and trusting him. The goal and the object of this hope are in eternity, but it is an eternity that has broken into the present at the coming of Christ. And we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus now. And he he will give us peace. He is our peace. In this life by faith and one day by sight, we continue to be a waiting people, living our whole lives by faith, awaiting a day when we live by sight. Our hope is certain and absolute, but it is fixed on what we cannot see. So what do you place your hope in? What are the things that you breathe and pant after? Our our biggest regrets will be for all the time we spent longing after the things of the world. But Jesus has come, and he is coming. Let us long for him to come again. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for the great privilege that we have of living in light of the resurrection. That your son, our good shepherd, is always interceding for us and lives in us by his spirit. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for all of the longings we have for the world and build in us a longing to see you face to face. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.